Let's pray together, could we? Father, that is the cry of our hearts. We just pray that as uh, we open up your word tonight, that we would not just gain some more information about what the Bible says. Lord, we pray that uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture together, that we might know you more. We pray that the heart of Jesus Christ that is demonstrated in this interaction with the disciples would become our heart. We're so thankful for the fact that no matter where we are, your word is relevant. Uh, We pray that you'd forgive us for sometimes putting you to the test and asking our teachers and our preachers, would you please make the word relevant? Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart of where we live and who we are. So now as we look together at uh, the teaching from John's gospel, our prayer is that your kingdom would come and your will would be done so that we might know you more. It's in the blessed name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen and amen. The Bible is relevant for the needs of our day. The Word of God will always scratch us exactly where we itch. If we are lonely, we can come to the Word itself, and as the Holy Spirit works through the reading of the Word, it is the Holy Spirit that reminds us that the words of Scripture can be our companion, our support, our stability. If we are discouraged, we can come and as we look at the word, as we sang together, we will find blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. One of the good news that we find in the word of God is uh, whenever we are guilty of sin, we come to God's truth and remind us that there is forgiveness through the Savior. And when the body of Christ, when the believers of Christ need instruction, God's word always teaches. When the people of God need some instruction for deeper insights into the kingdom of heaven, when God's people need to understand in a deeper way what God's heart is filled with and how his will for our lives can deepen, the word of God will always teach us. In John chapter 4, Jesus offers us insights into the topic of harvesting. And what the master teacher does is to clarify some issues concerning the harvest. Uh, The disciples had some misunderstandings about what the harvest was all about. And what Jesus does is to enter into a conversation with them to help them understand more clearly what exactly the harvest is. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. And if you would, let's read through verses 27 through 38. I typically don't read the passage of Scripture, especially when it's about 12 verses long. But I think it's important that you and I gain a feel of what's taking place before we unpack this passage of Scripture. I will be reading from the New International Version. Whatever translation you use. May God bless you, and may God speak to us as we look at his word together. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are white and ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, the one sows and another reaps is true. 
I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Rich words as Jesus interacts with his disciples. But if we're going to comprehend and understand exactly what he is saying here, we've got to understand and grasp the background of the scene that unfolds before us. In the opening of John chapter 4, we discover there that uh, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And John tells us, the apostle John tells us, that it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, it was actually his disciples. And verse number 3 tells us that when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. In other words, when we come to verse number 28, 26 down through 37, we have to understand that the disciples are following Jesus and they are on the move. They are going from the area of Judea and they're going to Galilee. And as the disciples understand and hear that Jesus is moving from Judea to Galilee, they probably get very, very excited. For you see, my friends, whenever Jesus Christ goes from point A to point B, when he arrives at point B, typically there's some tremendous evangelistic work that takes place. In fact, I would tell you that the disciples are energized because Jesus is leaving Judea where they've been working and they're headed over here to Galilee and when he shows up, there's going to be this fantastic evangelistic crusade. People are going to be excited because Jesus Christ the Messiah the power of God has come and all. It's always so great when Jesus goes from here to there. Now what's really interesting, verse 4, John tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now what we got to understand is that Jesus being Jewish and his disciples being Jewish, they would not go through Samaria. In this particular era, the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews and those who were only partly the people of God, they had intermarried. And so in this particular era, the people of Judea and Galilee did not want to associate with those Samaritans. And typically during this time period, Jesus and his disciples, rather than going through Samaria as they got from, you know, from Judea up to Galilee, they would have gone around. But John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Two reasons. As you read the rest of the past passage in the opening scene here, you'll discover that Jesus had to go through Samaria, first of all, because there was an unnamed woman there who had a deep need in her life, and he wanted to give her living water. So he had to go through Samaria. But not only that... The disciples had a limited understanding of what the harvest is all about. See, they thought that you had to avoid Samaria, and they were excited about going from, uh, from Judea to Galilee, but in their mind, why in the world would we go through Samaria? But here we go. Verse 5. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. They are going from point A to point B. They are going through Samaria. It tells us it's the sixth hour. It's 12 noon. They have been on the road for several hours. They tell us there that Jesus is tired. And so they come to this place and they take a rest. In fact, from the disciples' perspective, they couldn't wait to get over there to Galilee. And in their way of thinking, stopping off here at Sychar was simply a rest stop on the way to finding the place where the great evangelistic crusade was going to take place. How do you know that? Well, verse number six tells us Jesus himself is tired. They're probably tired. We need to take a break. And not only that, verse number uh, eight tells us parenthetically that when Christ enters into this conversation with the Samaritan woman in verse seven, John tells us that the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. 
See, Jesus has an eternal perspective. As he stops out for lunch, as he stops out for rest, he enters into a conversation with this unnamed Samaritan woman. The disciples, however, they have a temporal perspective, and they think in terms of we've got to get from Judea over here to Galilee, and if we got to, we're going to need some rest, and while we're taking a break here, we might as well go into town and get some food. Christ enters into conversation with people who need living water, and the disciples, we've got to get something to eat. And then we, if you took time to go through down verse 9 and on down through verse number 26, we would discover a tremendous conversation how Jesus leads this woman he's never met before into experiencing the living water of the kingdom of heaven. That's another time. Our focus tonight is the disciples. Notice verse 27 once again tells us that the disciples return and they're surprised. Why are they surprised? Well, it tells us there, first of all, that Jesus is talking with a woman. Strike one. Good Jewish men never talk to women publicly. And not only is he talking to a woman, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. What's he doing? Why is he talking to anybody? We are here to get a rest, and we are here to have some lunch. They're surprised. Jesus is actually talking to this woman. Now, what's really interesting, verse 28 tells us that when the disciples arrive, she leaves. What happens at our church when people don't know Christ are interested and we show up? I mean, look at that ink all over their arms. Who wears jewelry there? I am overwhelmed as I see that a woman who's interacting with Jesus Christ and finding living water, that when Christ's followers show up, she leaves. She returns to the city. Verse 29, she tells everybody that she's met a man. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, back at the disciple camp, verse 31, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. I mean, the disciples are obsessed with this. We've got to get from point A to point B. We've got to get from Judea to Galilee. Jesus, it's the middle of the day. We've been on the road for several hours. Take some water, take a drink, and here's some food. Would you please take and eat something? I mean, they're obsessed with this lunch thing. Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I mean, here's the scene. Jesus, eat something. I have food that you know nothing about. Peter looks at John. Did someone else bring him some food? We were over there at McDonald's, and we got all these hamburgers and fries, and we get here, and he says he already has food that we don't know about. Did somebody sneak in behind us and bring him food? I mean, they are overwhelmed and obsessed with this. We got to get some rest, and we got to have some lunch. The conversation continues. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You guys have a different perspective. You need to understand the harvest. You need to understand that evangelism isn't going over there necessarily. Evangelism is something that's going on all around us. And he brings that out in verse number 35 when he says, do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Don't forget the context. Verse 28 through 30, this woman goes back into town, tells everyone she sees that she's met someone that could be the Christ. And verse 30 tells us that they all come out to see him. And I would like to propose to you 
that when Jesus says, look at the harvest, see how it is white and ripe unto harvest, I believe that the, the Jesus says, hey, you guys, look over there. And as they look at the horizon, here come a group of white clad Samaritan people. And he says, that's the harvest. You were just in town. You went to buy food. You interacted with the different people there on the streets of this town. And here they come now, gentlemen, ladies, please understand the harvest. It's there. We don't have to go from point A to point B. You have been involved in this village. You have interacted with the people. You have bought food. You left a tent. I mean, you've been interacting. And there they are. It's the call. Open your eyes. The harvest is all around you. And we can get caught in the same kind of thinking as the disciples. We can get so confused in understanding the plan of God because we think that if we could just, you know, send some money over there, we get honored down at our district assembly and we pay our missionary funds and man, Jesus says, hey, that's great, but don't forget your neighbor. Don't forget the people that you interact with. Don't forget the banker. Don't forget the growth. Hey, every day of your life, you're in the middle of the harvest. Amen. It's the harvest. Amen. Yeah, to the disciples, hurry up, eat something. Let's get going. The disciples think that psych is the, only a pit stop. On the way to the big Galilean evangelistic crusade, Jesus stops the hurried disciples and calls for their attention. Hey, look. The harvest is not only picking up and moving to another city, region, or country. All those people you pass by while you're in town picking up lunch, that is the harvest. He was a successful salesperson. He lived in New York City. He was a believer in Jesus Christ during a particular revival, spiritual awakening emphasis. The Sunday morning message focused on moving from being a believer in Jesus Christ to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Big difference. He heard that if we're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, as we go through our daily activities, we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We are the body of the Christ. He's no longer here. He's ascended into heaven. But as the Spirit fills us, we are the body of Christ. We are the church. He had ceased just going to church and made a commitment that he was going to be the church throughout his activities of the week. He came and prayed. Uh, the next morning, he set his clock a little early, a little to go off a little bit earlier, and it rang, and it was kind of tough to get the grogginess out of his mind. But he got up and looked at some scripture and prayed about his day. And before he knew it, by the time he was ready to go out and hit the, go out and catch uh, the subway down there at Central Station to take him out to the suburbs where he'd have his first appointment, he was running late, and so he is hurriedly scurrying to catch the train that will take him out of the city to the suburbs where he has a very important sales appointment. In his hurriedness, he comes around the corner and he hears, final call, all aboard. He tries to pick up the pace, and as he tries to pick up the pace, he accidentally bumps into a single mom and her little girl. When he bumps into them, the little girl has been carrying a sack filled with her toys and coloring books and crayons for the day. And when he hits her, this pack falls to the ground and crayons scatter all over the platform floor. He thinks, he looks at his watch, oh my, this is a big appointment. I mean, this, this is gonna be a great bonus. And he's reminded that, you know, he prayed this prayer and so as the doors begin to close, final call, he doesn't rush to jump in before the doors close on the car. He stops, gets on his hands and knees, and begins to help the little girl pick up her crayons 
makes sure that everything's back in place and apologizes, expresses his love and care for the mother. He's about to head back in to make a phone call. He needs to call and tell this prospective sales that uh, he's going to be late, apologize, and hopefully they'll understand. As he turns to make his way back into the terminal, there's a tug at his jacket, and it's a little girl. And she looks up at him and says, Mr., are you Jesus? And the truth is, for about three or four minutes, in a busy subway system platform, he was. It's the call. Open your eyes. You pass dozens and dozens of people every single day of your life. That's the harvest. You don't have to go over there. You just, as you are going through life, you are constantly given opportunities to share the love of Jesus Christ. And my friends, the world is hungry for the genuine love of Jesus Christ to be demonstrated through the people who call themselves Christian. It's the call. Open your eyes. Then in verse 36 and 37, Jesus goes a little bit deeper. He says there, verse 35, open your eyes, the fields are ripe. Verse 36, even now the reaper draws his wages, even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Verse 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. It's interesting here that Jesus points out that there are two aspects, two very important things if we're going to have a harvest celebration. He talks about sowing and he talks about reaping. He talks about the fact that there must be cooperation between those who sow the seeds of the kingdom and those who reap the harvest of the kingdom. Now, being 21st century church people, there's a tendency to place a higher value on reaping ministries. I mean, we're a very much a results-oriented mentality. And with a results-only mentality, we believe that the key to a church's harvesting is the pastor and our pastoral staff. I mean, if they are good up front... And if they are the kind of people that can connect with people when they visit the church, and man, we're a part of a big church. We know we got a senior pastor, we got an associate pastor, we got a we got a youth pastor, we got a I mean we I mean we are we got it together. The mentality, having the right pastor, very important. But John says, you understand something. There are some who are gifted at bringing in the harvest and reaping. But you know what? If there's going to be any reaping, there must be sowing. And the mentality that, hey, pastor, our church is going to grow. We're going to have a harvest. Jesus here in John chapter 4 blows that thinking right out of the water. Because you'll see there in verse 39, immediately after what we're looking at, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus Christ because they came out and heard heard John sing a beautiful song. Nope. Oh, okay. They came and Peter, that great preacher of Pentecost, preached a sermon that knocked their socks off. Nope. They believed in Jesus Christ because of the woman's testimony. There must be the cooperation between sowing and reaping. If the kingdom of God is going to advance, we must understand 
that kingdom building will occur, not only because someone preaches, not only because someone sings beautifully, but kingdom building will occur because there is someone willing to go back into their everyday world and do sowing ministry. Jesus wants to clarify misunderstandings about the harvest. The key is not finding someone who's up front doing reaping ministry. The key is cooperation, partnership between those who reap and those who sow. And my friends, what we need to understand is that sowing ministry is very, very challenging. I hate to be too simplistic, but after 77, uh, after about 30 plus, almost 40 years of ministry, I can't think very big thoughts anymore. I get the computer just bogged down on me. But I find some very simple things that help us grasp where we are. At the risk of being too simplistic, no matter what kind of church you go into, that runs 20 or 200 or 600, the truth is there could be one of three philosophies of ministry that direct that church. A philosophy is the belief system that determines why a congregation does what it does when it does it. Philosophy number one is this. The pastor is here for the people's agenda. We pay you to do ministry. We have this agenda, and we expect you to follow this agenda. We own you. By the way, it's unbiblical. The second philosophy is this. The pastor, uh, yes, the people are here for the pastor's agenda. I am your leader. You know how lucky you are to have me? Did you realize that I get at least two calls every month for other churches? You are so fortunate to have me. Please listen. See, the congregation can think they owe, own the pastor, but the pastor, if he's not a servant leader, thinks that the congregation owes him or her. That's not biblical either. You know what Scripture teaches? Scripture teaches that there is a cooperation between those who sow and those who reap. Scripture teaches, philosophy number three is that people and pastor are here for God's agenda. And we are going to work together to impact our community for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's not a matter of owing anyone. It's not a matter of owning anyone. It's a matter of people and pastor finding opportunities to pursue ministry together. Cooperation. Sowing and reaping. And we say, now come on, Bob. That's tough. You're right. And Jesus says, amen. Because look at verse number 38. He says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Three times he uses the same word. It's translated a little bit differently in each place. But notice, he says, work. Mm, That's a four-letter word. Others have done the hard work. Ah! You have reaped the benefits of their labor. See, he talks about the call. Open your eyes. He talks about cooperation between those who are up front and those who are behind the scene. And then he talks about the cost. And he says, work, hard work, labor. In fact, the word that is used here in the 38th verse is used earlier in the chapter. In chapter 4, verse 6, it says that Jesus is tired from the journey. He's tired. It's the exact same word here. And all of God's people said, oh, man. (laughs) Work, 
hard work. The term kapas has the picture of, of toiling, striving, struggling. It gives the picture of trouble, vexation, uneasiness. In fact, in the New Testament era, the word is used outside of Scripture to describe crying and mourning and bereaving that's experienced when someone has died. It's the cost. Sowing ministry is much more than handing someone a gospel tract. Sowing ministry is giving one's life away. Sowing ministry is praying every day for five years for someone who needs to experience newness of life. Sowing ministry is spending your day off to help a neighbor fix the car. Sowing ministry is watching a single parent's two children for free when the regular child care giver is not available. Sowing ministry is using money that we set aside for our vacation to buy groceries for that family that's just lost everything. Sowing ministry is not preaching at someone. Sowing ministry is staying up all night and just listening to them. It's work. It's hard work. It's toil. It's tiring. That's why we need God to work in us and through us. If we try to do it on our own, we'll quit in a matter of days or maybe weeks. It has to be, there has to be something deep within us that is not only motivating us, but is moving us. We have to see way beyond the temporal. We have to see the eternal. We have to have the eyes of Jesus Christ. We have to have the heart of Jesus Christ. It's sowing ministry. It's giving our lives away. There are defining moments in everyone's spiritual walk. In the ministry that God has led me into and used the ways he's used me the last few decades, one of the most defining moments, I can, in fact, one of the first defining moments occurred when I was a youth pastor in Houston, Texas. His name was Thomas. And Thomas was a 16-year-old who had made some decisions that weren't very good. They were very negative in nature. They brought a great deal of turmoil to his home. One Wednesday afternoon, I was in my office. The phone rang. It was Thomas's father. And he called to see if I had heard or seen from Thomas. I told him that I hadn't, and he explained that he was concerned because Thomas should have been home from school an hour before, and he still wasn't home. It was Wednesday evening, and we got to the church about 6.30, and Thomas's father came by about quarter till seven and stuck around for a few minutes because he thought that Thomas may show up at church, but he didn't. Uh, I assured him that we'd continue to pray and, and told him if there's anything that we, the church, can do to please let us know. Uh, we conducted the youth Bible study, and Shar and I went back to the apartment down from the church where we were living, and as we approached the upstairs apartment, we noticed that in, in front of our door that entered into our apartment sat Thomas. We invited him in asked him if he was okay, and he assured us that he was, and informed him that his parents are very concerned and sought his permission to call home and let him know that you were, he was all right. And he said, yeah, that'll be fine. His parents uh, lived about 20, 25 minutes away from where we lived. We called them, and they said they would be there immediately. But uh, while we were there, Charlene asked Thomas if he had anything to eat, and he hadn't, so she fixed him a hamburger. Thomas and I sat there in the front room and struck up a conversation. The gist of what Thomas said was this. He said, Bob, I know I've made some bad decisions. I admit that. He said, but you know how I feel? I feel like I'm out there in the Gulf of Mexico, and I'm out there quite a ways, and uh, the tide has begun to move out, 
The undertow is very strong, and I feel like I'm being pulled away from the shore. In fact, I've gone down two times, and I feel like that the third time is coming. And as I look back toward the shore, I see my family, my friends, and my church family all standing there on the beach, and they're saying, come on, Thomas, what's the matter with you? Come on, let's go, what's the matter with you? He said, nobody is getting into the water to try and help me. I tried to fight the tears because he said his church family I was one of those. Sewing ministry. Here's a tract. Be praying for you. Nothing wrong with praying. Why don't we stop right there, take him by the hand and pray? It's work. It's hard work. It's labor. It's tiring. Which brings us to the bottom line of harvest truth. The bottom line of harvesting is the heart. It's that center of our being because what we discover is that the heart always determines what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we say, what we do. As we go through our daily lives, as we go through our routines and habits of life, what is going on within our heart will always affect what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we say, what we do. And if our heart is just focused on us, and if our agenda is just about us, opportunities to do ministry cross our path, and you know what we see? Oh, no, I've got to get over here for my appointment. And unlike that gentleman in New York City, we just kind of... See... What we have to understand, this whole issue of the harvest, the matter of evangelism, reaching out to others, our church being a kingdom-building church, the issue is not how good's our program. The issue is what's going on in our hearts. You can have the best program put out by Kansas City, Lifeway, the Baptists, the Lutherans. You can try them all. If the heart's not right, they will bring very little success. The harvest, it's all around us. The question is, do I have the heart of Christ? I go home this evening and Charlene beats me home. And she tells me we have no water. Oh, man, I need a shower. <laughs> we have no water. And I'm thirsty. Well, it's 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. I'll call first thing in the morning. I'm going to call a plumber. I call a local plumber. Person says they'll be there in an hour. I meet him at the door. Here's what I want. I want you to put new plumbing underneath the sinks. I want you to put in new spigots, new faucets, new handles. I want you to put in new hardware on every sink of our house. Are you sure? Yes, and I want the best. Okay. Is there working? Works most of the day. Hands me the bill. Give him my credit card. Fantastic. I go into the bathroom downstairs. Still no water. I knew I shouldn't call those local plumbers. They never get anything right. 
I'm going to call somebody from Plain City. Those people over there know how to fix things. And so they come over. I tell, here's what I want you to do. I want you to change all the hardware. I want you to put in the best that you can find. Well, it looks like, well, I know, but they uh, get, the, get the better. They said that was the best. There must be something bester. Well, that's not a word, but we want it bester than that. So, okay. Hand me the bill. Once again, I pay. Go in, still nothing. I knew you can't count on anybody. You got to go into Columbus. Those plumbers know what they're doing. And I do the same thing again. That would be ridiculous. You know the first question that should be addressed when you have no water? What's going on at the source? Has the well dried up? Is the connection into the city water system something gone wrong there? Before you fix all the outward things, check the source. And if kingdom building is not a part of my life, if I'm not building a relationship with others for the purpose of befriending them, and truly loving them so the door of opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ could occur. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. If I constantly see people in need as an interruption to my agenda, something's wrong. If there's no place at our church for people who do not know yet Jesus Christ, something's wrong. It's misunderstandings that Jesus corrects. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on in here determines what you see tomorrow, what you hear tomorrow, what you think about tomorrow, what you're going to say and what you're going to do. Some of you here you hear this, you say, you know what? I'm really going to try hard to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Before you do that, please be certain that you have the real thing. See, we're not out to win people to a cause. We're not out to win people to our church. We're out to point people to Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not in my life... I probably will be very ineffective in bringing them beyond a cause, beyond church attendance, and leading them and helping them experience living water. The reason Christ could lead that woman to experiencing living water because he was living water. He had this intimate relationship with the Father. He was a human being just like us. But he was filled with the Spirit, and he had this intimate relationship with his Father, and he could see beyond. We've got to get some lunch. He could see people waiting behind the counter. And he took time to talk with them. People hate getting behind me at Walmart. Because I typically try to strike up a conversation. And it's amazing. When you talk about a person who's lonely and needs living water, they just kind of respond. Do I have all the answers? No. But I do know that Jesus Christ offers us the call, reminds us of the cooperation, and reminds us that the cost is our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, your interaction and your conversations and your teaching are just so simple. Lord, as we've looked together at John chapter 4, we've been humbled. We've been humbled because we have this mentality and this thinking 
that's ruined our perspective of what we as followers of Christ are to be about. Lord, would you forgive us for thinking more like the disciples than we do thinking about you? Thinking like the disciples instead of like you. And Lord, in our world, we just rush from point A to point B, from point B to point C. rest of these people, but I really can relate to the disciples. Let's eat. Let's get going. Lord, tonight, would you just do some works of grace in our hearts? Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know what it is to be born again, to have living water sent into a dry, thirsty life, may tonight be the night to say, yes, to you, Jesus. May they just give their entire life, all the weaknesses, all the pain, all of this, may they just give it to you and experience newness of life. Do it tonight, Lord. Give them the grace to say yes to you. And then, Lord, for those of us who've been hanging around the church, we've grown oblivious the hundreds of homes that have been built up around our church. We become oblivious to the person who takes our money when we buy our gasoline. We become oblivious to our neighbors. In fact, all we can see is their little kids who keep throwing their balls over in our yard. and it's so, It so messes up our days. Lord, help us. Tonight, Lord, Bring living water from deep within us. Give us the real thing. May we not make a commitment to try harder. May we tonight simply trust you in a way that we've never trusted you in the past. Lord, tonight as we sing together, this is our heart's cry. Wherever you lead us, we're going to follow. The altar is open, my friends. I understand, I realize you don't have to come forward to experience God's amazing grace, but there's something that happens when we just move out of our comfort zone, if it even be our seat. As we sing together this great invitation hymn of the church, would you respond as Christ speaks to you? Let's sing it together. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he He leads me. 
close. Pastor, if you just come and take the platform. Pastor's going to pray for us before we dismiss. Very private moment for the next three days until 9 o'clock Wednesday night. I want to pray specifically for those of you who God is dealing with about this, this topic of the harvest. The pastor, of course, will be also watching. But with the uplifted hand, you'll just simply say, pray for us, pastors. Would you pray for us these next four days? Raising of the hand. God bless you. Put it down. God bless you. Amen. Amen. That's a step of faith. And we believe that God who began to work in your heart concerning this issue of the harvest will continue to work and bring it to its completion. May this church be a great church because of the fact harvesting drives it. Pastor. Well, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the, the message we heard tonight. I believe it's from you. Lord, your command is to go, and we've stayed. I pray, Lord, that you'll uh, make us aware of the process of discipleship, that it's, it's not just about leading people to Christ, but the process of discipleship begins long before anyone ever accepts a relationship with you. And so, Lord, you've invited us into your harvest field. You've invited us to a life of mission where we can share with you and we can participate in your kingdom's growth in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our community, in the places where we do business, in the places, Lord, where we have a leisure activities, Lord, you invite us to be the hands, the feet of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm reminded of the book of Acts, and I'm reminded of the event of Pentecost, and, and I'm reminded of Christ's words where he said, you will receive power to be my witnesses when you are full of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we're reminded that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not a gift that just gives personal piety, but, Lord, it is a gift that gives us strength and power and mission to complete what you've asked us to do. You've asked us, Lord, to be the church. You've asked us to be Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that cannot happen sitting in a sanctuary Sunday after Sunday without engaging our culture and engaging our community. So, Lord, give us a willingness. Give us eyes that are open. Give us ears that listen. And, Lord, I say that again. Give us ears that listen. May, may we be, may we let, allow you to speak through us, but, Lord, may we listen for your sweet spirit. May we listen to what you're doing and participate in your move in our community. Now, Lord, help us. Help us not to take this message and say, oh, that was a good message and go home. But Lord, may we respond by how we live in our community tonight and tomorrow and throughout the rest of this week. This is an opportunity to put action to the word of God. And Lord, the action's simple. Be your hands and feet. Now, Lord, be with us, keep us, guide us. And, Lord, as we come back tomorrow night, may we be ready to engage your word once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless.